You're listening to episode 4 of season 13 for 20, 2019. I, of course, remind you, dear listener, that I am no longer using months and weeks and things like that. Days of the week, even. It, it's all numbered days and year from now on. And actually, upon further thought, I, I realized I probably shouldn't even say 20, 2019. I should probably go 2019.20. That would even be better, right? So 100% of any given year is 0.365, and therefore if you say 2019.20 or 2019.27 or 29, 2019.20, um, I don't know, I'd have to look up a calendar. But I mean, any number would do, I guess, 100. Then then you are defining how long, how far along the year you are. So that's perfect. It's a beautiful system. Very proud of myself for deciding to switch to this method of calendaring. So anyway, you're listening to GNU World Order, everyone. I'm, I'm Klaatu. Hi. In this episode, we're going to talk about ZFS one more time. Why? Because I finally installed ZFS, and I will guide you on how to do that yourself. Not that I'm a, a worthy guide at all. I've, I have used it all of maybe 15 minutes so far. But I am a big, I'm a firm believer in, in just getting getting into the water as the, as it as it were you know you, you can kind of poke around at the water on the edge of the water i'm in new zealand it's the summer i'm, I'm making beach analogies apologies uh you you can kind of get close to it but i mean sometimes you just want to you just have to jump in in order to kind of get over that that procrastination or hesitation or whatever it is so we're going to cover that today we're going to take a quick look at two the, the two r the the two packages that start with r in the package set a of slackware and then maybe I'll get to other topics. We shall see. Let's get started. Let's not waste any time. ZFS. Talked about it in the past, I don't know, 20 episodes so far, and I've finally gotten around to installing it. It was not difficult, and that's kind of what I want to say uh, in this episode, that if, if you are thinking, as I wasn't, uh, about installing ZFS, and then someone starts bugging you about, hey, you should install and try ZFS on Linux, then you know what? Why not? You, you should try it. it. It's not actually that difficult to install. There's a project, as you probably have caught on by now, called ZFS-on-Linux, or ZOL, and apparently it is doing uh, enough good work that I think the story was that FreeBSD is going to rebase their work of getting ZFS on or, or of having ZFS on VSD uh, to the same code base as ZOL, and then I think I also read somewhere that Open Indiana was going to do the same, but that doesn't really make sense. But maybe, maybe I, like I said before, Open Indiana is um, keen, as far as I can tell, to get rid of the CDDL licensed uh, software. So I wouldn't be surprised. Either way, ZFS on Linux is uh, apparently a pretty good project. People seem to be happy with it, and and it makes uh, getting ZFS at least compatibility onto your Linux box. So I have not, for instance, done the drastic thing and wiped my entire hard, my, the hard drive and reinstalled and ha and and you know I'm not running a ZFS home directory or, or anything like that. That would be neat, but I, I'm not. As I said last week, I think I'm I'm off to a conference in, in in a week, and then I'm off to somewhere else in about two weeks. I can't afford to be messing around with computers right now, so um, for jeopardizing the the sort of workability of my computers. So not doing that. But I figured, well, I should at least put ZFS on the computer, and that way I can start maybe using ZFS on a thumb drive, and that could be the bridge between my Linux box and my Open Indiana 
partition on my laptop. That seems useful to me. So I sat down at my Slackware box, as one does, and did a uh, search through slackbuilds.org. Now I use my own little custom tool, tool called Sport, or Slack port, and it's um, sort of a little port-like tool. I like to think of it as that. And so I'll do a search, uh, Sport S um, ZFS. And that returns that there is a ZFS-related package in the system category of slackbuilds.org, ZFS-on-Linux. So I will do a sport cat ZFS-on-Linux to see the readme files. And it tells me that it requires the SPL Solaris package to be installed before installing this. So I'm going to do a cat on Solaris, uh, SPL Solaris, and it says that the Solaris porting layer, SPL, is a Linux kernel module which provides many of the Solaris kernel APIs. This shim layer all, um, makes it possible to run Solaris kernel code in the Linux kernel with relatively minimal modification. This can be particularly useful when you want to track upstream Solaris development closely and do not want to do not with the overhead of maintaining a large patch which converts Solaris primitives to Linux primitives. Well, I wouldn't know how to do that anyway, so it's convenient. You need this if you want to run ZFS on Linux. Okay, well, there's that. That's the part that we care about, I guess. It says, note, you'll need the kernel source code to be able to compile this. The package is kernel dependent, so you you must re recompile it every time a new kernel uh, that you, you know, if you install a new kernel, then you have to re recompile this. If you're building this for a kernel that isn't currently running, you'll need to pass that kernel's uname-r output. Okay, so, yeah. So there there are ways around it, and um, that's great. So this, this little Slack build is uh, provided by Marcin Shizowski, and it's um, really fantastic that he's maintaining this, and it's super easy to install. You just do, or what I do is I sport install SPL dash Solaris space ZFS dash on Linux. And presumably your distribution has some kind of related command. Maybe it's a DNF install ZFS dash on dash Linux, or, or maybe it's uh, apt-get or whatever. So whatever your command of choice is, that's how you get this on there. And it'll uh, either install binaries that are matched up to your current current environment, or it will look at your environment and, and build based upon it, which is what I'm, which is what I have going on here. So once it's installed, I just kind of took a guess. I, I really just took a, it was a complete stab in the dark. I just thought, um, shot in the dark? Yeah. Um, I, I just figured, well, it's, it's a kernel thing, so I'm going to guess it's a mod probe ZFS. And yes, it is. So then if, if you do an, an LS mod, LS mod, and then pipe that to grep ZFS, I'm going to do that insensitively, case insensitive. So ZFS, Z, Z Unicode, Z, ZDAVL, ICP, Z Common, Z in V pair, ZFS Common, Z Common. So yeah, it's, there's a bunch of stuff that I've just listed for you um, running, and then those are all grouped together under the SPL module. So those are those are the things that you need to kind of have churning in the background so that the rest of anything that you do with ZFS works. The um, the way I sort of figured out, I guess, how to do this ZFS thing, first thing, again, just kind of guessing, I figured, well, makefs.zfs, right? Uh, no. Nope. So, okay, well, let's just look at makefs and see what, maybe it's like something weird, like Z something. So I, I looked in, 
just kind of tab to complete MakeFS, and there's just nothing there that, that looks vaguely ZFS related. So I thought, okay, well, that's not good. So I looked in my packages, my var log packages, and then ZFS-on-Linux, and sort of scrolled through, and that, for if you're not running Slackware, that is, FYI, the place where it records at one line, one string per, you know, one one entry per line, it records what exactly was installed with every package. So there's no weird RPM-QL kind of incantation that you need to understand what's been installed in your system. You just do a less on slash var slash log slash packages, and there's a full list. And it's a pretty respectable list. There's a lot of stuff that got installed, but the stuff that we care about as users, I reckon, uh, are in either a bin or an sbin folder. Here they are. They're in sbin. So they're, they're administrative types of commands. A normal person wouldn't be using these. And those are, or, or a normal person could, but they would have to use sudo or su permissions to do that. So, um, well, su isn't really a permission. It's switching who you're running as. But anyway... Um, they're privileged, is what I'm trying to say. And there's about eight of them. There's fsck.zfs, so that's a file system check for ZFS. That's always good. Like I said, I think in the past episode, the fact that UDF didn't have that kind of always kind of made me nervous. There's mount.zfs. It's probably useful. ZDB, Z, literal Z, Z-E-D, ZFS, Z-Hack, Z-Inject, Z-P-I-O-S, Z-Pool, zstreamdump, and ztest. So those are the sort of the user-facing more or less commands. Okay, so none of those told me really how to make a file system, and that was a little bit more complex, and for that I turned to the man page. And unfortunately, I've got to admit the man page, I gotta say it wasn't super useful to me in this respect, but that was I think partly because I was looking very specifically for, you know, the the incantation of MKFS. That's what I was looking for, right? And in my mind, it it was very much it had to be a device node because I wanted to do this onto a thumb drive. So I did man ZFS. And if I look up, for instance, device, there are a couple of couple of mentions of devices, but there wasn't really ever any kind of uh, explicit sort of like, here's how you define the device, which I thought was kind of strange. And, and it, I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, I, I searched for just slash dev and there's no mention of slash dev. Uh, so yeah, it was a little bit, a little bit non-helpful. And so I scrolled all the way down to the bottom because sometimes that is useful scroll all the way down to the bottom and look for examples. And there were some examples, there are about eight or seven examples. And it starts out with uh, creating a ZFS file system hierarchy. That's cool. So it's ZFS create pool slash home. ZFS set mount point equal export home pool home. ZFS create pool home Bob. Um, So that seems useful, except there's this very important sort of thing missing, which is where is this mount point or this this, uh, pool that we're creating or whatever it is, where is that located? I just couldn't figure out how to how to define the the actual device that I want to create this on, and I didn't want to screw anything up and accidentally I don't know create some you know create a a ZFS partition on my main hard drive on accident. And as I would have I, I found out later that it would have warned me if I'd tried to do that. So enough about what I did and couldn't figure out the 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 answer the ultimate answer is 
uh, a little bit different. So this is again specifically for a, a USB drive. So I guess if you're if you're doing this all natively on a ZFS drive, then you can just create a pool. It's not a big deal. But since we're redefining sort of the root file system, it is it is a little bit different. The, the process is a little bit different. And that process is zpool, that's z-p-o-o-l, space create, and then some name of the thing, the of the pool that you want to create. So if you remember my talk um, or, or our coverage of the LVM set, that, that tool set, then you'll kind of remember something about how you made it a storage pool and then you could you could throw storage into that pool and so on, right? So this is kind of creating a pool and giving it the and giving it space all at all within one command. So zpool space create space zfs stick. That's what I called it because it's a USB stick. And then uh, space slash dev slash sdx1, where sdx is of course the device that you have plugged into your computer and that you've confirmed that that's the location and that you know that that's what you want to use as your storage device okay so when I did that it it comes it came back with hey you can't do that because there's a file system on that drive now I happened to know that there was a file system on that drive and I happened not to care so I used the dash F probably for force as it told me to do to create the ZFS files or the, the pool on that device anyway and it did that and I think it just kind of, it did that silently, and um, that was sort of the end of our transaction together, me and Zedpool. So the next thing that I didn't know, you know, what to do uh, was how to now find what I just, what I had just accomplished. So I went up into my, um, my device, the, the, the device notifier thing in KDE, and tried to mount the drive uh, in the file manager, and it didn't let me do that. It it just kind of ignored me. So uh, the GUI ignored me. I mean, it didn't give me any kind of error. It just it just acted as if though I'd never clicked on it bef at all. So um, I, I turned back to the man page, and it turns out there's this command called ZFS space list, and that lists all of the 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 Z pools, the the storage pools that ZFS, the, the sort of the ZFS subsystem, if you will, running in the background, is aware of. And it tells me, sure enough, there's the name ZFS stick used as a full, a, a whopping 344 kilobytes. And I know what that 344 kilobytes is because I put a little photo in the thumb drive just to just to have copied a file somewhere. Available at 57.6 gigabytes. It's a pretty big thumb drive, I reckon. Uh, I mean, sort of. I mean, you know, you see 8 gig, you see 64 gig. 64 is pretty big uh, thumb drive. Refer 283 kilobytes, mount point, slash ZFS stick. Ah, okay, so if we go to LS slash ZFS stick, sure enough, that's where that's where the device is. So after I created the pool, it was auto-magically mounted at my root partition with the name of the pool that I had provided it. Now, I could have overridden that setting with the mount point option, but I didn't. Uh, do that. I didn't know to do that. Didn't really need to do, do that. So I'm I'm fine with just mounting things at slash ZFS. I guess in the future I could I could override that and I could maybe set up a ZFS configuration file. Maybe I'm not really sure what would that that would go into it, and have it mounted under the slash media uh, directory or the slash mnt directory and so on. So 
um, I you can open up your your um, uh, any a uh, file manager whatever you use I use Dolphin so if I open that up and I have my uh, locations kind of edit editable so I can just click right in there and just type in slash zfs and it auto completes it figures out that I'm talking about the one place on my system that starts with slash z and there it is this empty space now it's got a little icon up in the left corner for me telling me hey this is owned by root so this is kind of a weird place for you in user land to be and that's okay so um i figured it was probably going to be a little bit restricted that area so i tried to drag just a little little piece of art that i downloaded uh, from the internet at one point or another into the drive and and sure enough it told me i couldn't do that that i was not Permission was denied, access denied, could not write to the slash ZFS. So back in the terminal as root, I said make uh, dir, make dir, slash ZFS stick, and then I'll just stash, and then ch uh, ch um, what would it be? Chmod, let's do just for now, chmod 777 slash ZFS stick stash. And that now that's writable by everyone. And so I can put little artworks in there, and there you go. It works. So that's that's my experience so far with ZFS. Am I in love with it? Well, not yet. I just just got started, but I am eager to try um, to try ZFS to kind of give it the old the old college try, really, to see how it does. Because I I have I have high hopes. I hear a lot of good things about it. Um, I'm not necessarily, as I've said before, I'm not necessarily looking for a replacement for things like ext4. But if I do have if if ZFS is going to be the universal file system like Vulcan Writer promised me in the previous episode, then I'm I'm on board. I'm ready for this. So um, I am eager to start using this in earnest. So thanks um, Deep Geek, thanks Vulcan Writer, and thanks anyone else who I've probably forgotten. Maybe Cobra Two. Cobra Two bugs me about a lot of things. Um, all of which are good and have have mostly all changed my life. But but yeah, like. Thank you for to the people who have kind of prodded me into trying ZFS. I I appreciate that, and I I urge you, dear listener, to to give it a shot. I mean, at least install it on your system, just like you would install support for NTFS or XFAT or JFS or anything else. Just install it. Get it on the system so that if you encounter a ZFS thumb drive you can plug it into your computer and it will be recognized like that much you owe yourself that much if if nothing else and um i don't know it'll be interesting to try you know, all these fancy snapshots and things like that uh, but that's data that i have yet to gather so it's a topic for a later episode let's go get a cup of coffee <laughs> Now, I said I was going to talk about some packages from the Slackware package set of A, which, uh, if you're just joining us, we're talking about, we, we on this show, we talk about packages that get installed on your Linux 
computer without you ever really thinking about it, which isn't a bad thing. It's not like they're sneaking things on there. It's just a general awareness of what is on your computer because we only use maybe 20% of the commands half the time, so it's, it's kind of good to know what else is available or what other commands other commands are using uh, in order to accomplish the wonderful things that get accomplished on a Linux box. Before we do that, though, I want to talk about this little place called Web Hosting Co-op. Now, Web Hosting Co-op, I have mentioned before, I know I have, because uh, a listener of this very show, a guy called Josh Cox, is one of the, the people who run uh, webhosting.coop. I didn't realize what his position was or what his placement was in the company, but he's kind of like, he's one of the main guys. And and he was kind of bugging me, just like Vulcanrider was bugging me about ZFS. Um, he, Josh was kind of bugging me for a while about getting myself onto webhosting.coop. And I told him, look, it sounds great, and I fully support a nonprofit cooperative web hosting company. Like, that that sounds really amazing. But um, at the time, I had free hosting, or I think at, at one point I lost the free hosting, but I still had... Um, what was it? I, I I lost the free hosting, but I still oh I still had another account that I had been paying for for the past like five years or something. So it would have it just would have been silly for me to migrate. So he threw he threw a, a free web hosting token my way. He he gave me a year free in order to try webhosting.coop. And so I finally did give it a go. And and the things that in the the things that were keeping me from trying it earlier were really just just convenience sake, you know, I mean, just, just bandwidth of, t of time, really. It was just whether I, I had the time to sit down and, and, and dedicate time to, to migrating information and, and kind of just mentally restructure a bunch of, a bunch of things that I knew needed to be restructured. So webhosting.coop is something that if you are looking for web hosting, I would strongly, strongly suggest you looking at into. And it's obviously easy for me to say this now because I'm on it and I'm not paying for it. Uh, that said, uh, the experience that I've had so far makes me feel eternally guilty for not paying for it yet, and when that year of free hosting rolls around, I am going to happily pay for my web hosting account on webhosting.coop. Because, first of all, and this is, first of all, it's a cooperative, and not everyone really gets what a cooperative is is but i mean we're all members of a cooperative if you're listening to this show and you run linux or bsd or open indiana or whatever it is you're you're sort of kind of a member of a cooperative i mean there's some governance differences between a literal cooperative and just a a community of people but but in a way this is really the a, a pure form of co-op because we all sort of have ownership of this of of the technology that we use and some of us use more than we we provide and others provide more than maybe we use but we all benefit from it and and like i say there's there's governance dif differences there because there's not really we're not a co-op because we don't we don't meet and then make decisions and stuff like that but i mean some projects do so cooperative the the concept of a cooperative in, in free and open source software is really, really important. It's, it's a very significant concept, and it may, it may take many different forms in terms of, you know, if you really drill down and see how they make decisions and so on. But it is an important concept. And, and I think, in, in a sense, if you look at the Internet 
as a whole, it, it, it started as kind of a cooperative. And certainly if, if not a, again, not a literal cooperative, the sense was that it was a community and a cooperative community, something, a, a place where people learn from one another. I mean, just think about, this is one of my favorite examples, because if you, if you experienced this, then you know how deeply true it is. And if you have not yet experienced it, then I think luckily there's there's still a, a chance that you can experience this yourself, although a little bit less uh, in some ways. But anyway, the thing that I'm talking about is HTML, right? How do we all learn HTML? Well, back in the early days of the internet, or <laughs> I call them the early days of the internet, they're not really that early, but, but when I got into the internet and started getting curious about, well, how do I get on to this thing? How do I get a presence on there? You would just go to a website and you'd you'd right click on it or something and you'd click view page source and there's all the code right there. And so if you copied all that code and pasted it into a, a text uh, editor and made little changes, you know, where it said Bob's site, you changed it to be Clatu's site, then when you looked at that page in your web browser, it, it all it worked. It worked, and, and then you could experiment around. What what are these funny numbers under the colors? There's uh, six digits, and I don't know what any of them ne- mean. So I'll change a couple and see what happens. And it was that kind of very raw kind of reverse engineering, really sort of like a, a puzzle. I mean, a proper puzzle of where you you're in a safe sort of container, and you can reverse things and try it and back out of it and then try it again. And and you learn like that. So that was the internet, right? And and it was a very kind of cooperative sense because it was sort of this idea that we could all learn from each other and 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 thereby create a better space for everyone. And and that's important. That's super super important. So webhosting.coop is a a, a proper co-op with like a governing council and everything. You've got democratic control over over the over the over the organization. So that's cool. I haven't been able to take advantage of that yet because I don't believe anything has happened with it. I mean, they have they have town hall meetings, but I just I don't believe that that's happened since I've been a member yet. But I the the, the reason I'm talking about webhosting.coop right now rather than uh, after another 2 or 3 or 4 months is because first of all, I can always talk about it again, but second of all, my experience just just with from the I think I, I I believe I switched over over the holidays. Yeah, in fact I did because I was getting messages from people about how the websites were down. Um, so I switched hosting at, at that time, but it was this I was doing a, a fairly large campaign of kind of like okay I'm going to reorganize all my stuff because people were were asking me well hey where did those those articles go where did these articles go and it was it was getting to the point where i i felt like i needed to have a centralized location for all of the stuff that i do so i kind of wanted to do this migration right i wanted to do it correctly and so i took time to do this tried to figure out how i was going to structure the server and and all the different components that i wanted to put into it had a couple of different ideas and and I, I you know you open up an account and then you've got your public underscore HTML um, folder so you can SSH in there and and figure that out. But I wanted to do some HT access stuff so that I could redirect things. And and I got to admit I my Apache is pretty rusty lately because I I had even when I was doing a lot of sysadmin work I had switched over to Nginx for practically everything. And so. 
I, I've not done a lot of the Apache-specific things in a very long time. So I was trying to redirect some stuff, and and eventually I finally just asked uh, Josh to help me out. And and he just, yeah, he, he knew exactly what to do. He was, he was super fast, suit got it done really, you know, really elegantly, which I think is the main thing, right? I mean, like, I could have done it. I was getting there. It would have happened eventually, but it probably would have been a hack. And then someone who really, really knows it drops in, takes care of it, and you're you're up and running. Now, I realize that that sort of thing doesn't scale. And if, if all of you suddenly switched to webhosting.coop for your, your hosting provider and expected people to answer your questions really quickly and promptly and to get everything done for you and to figure out all your HT access files, uh, it wouldn't work because there's only so many of them and there's so many of us. So it would, it would you know, eventually is what I, I'm trying to say. Eventually, any kind of organization would sort of, sort of start to buckle under under uh, under uh the weight of a bunch of people and then they would have to you know, things would take a little bit longer to get done or whatever so i'm i'm not raving really about the fact that i got quick and prompt and really really good help i'm just i'm praising the fact that they were there and willing to help which which i know you're you're thinking well doesn't that describe any company i mean that's what capitalism ensures right that that good companies rise to the top and and you go to a company and you ask for help and suddenly because they're a good company there's lots of help for you now i don't know what world you experience in your reality but that has not been my experience so far especially with web hosting uh, i remember days where that used to be the case where you could call a web host and ask questions, and they would actually have answers because all 20 people working there were were actually they they knew what they were talking about, or or they'd been there long enough, around smart people enough that that they can provide answers or at least good guesses towards answers. And then at some point, it all kind of got migrated away to call centers where there are scripts that people read to you, uh, generally echoing the same questions that you called to ask in the first place. So the fact that webhosting.coop is really, really serious about being a capable and and reliable provider of web hosting is really, really exciting to me. And that has been the the most that's sort of been the, the most significant thing that I've experienced so far with webhosting.coop is just that that there's real people there behind the scenes who who know their stuff and who are willing to help it may or may not take a day or two for them to get back. I, I don't really – it doesn't matter. Probably if I was like – I don't know. If if maybe they offered a premium plan and I was super rich, I could I could pay a premium and get really, really fast responses or something. Who knows? Maybe that's something they're they're considering if they scale – you know, if they have to scale up, that maybe that's what, how they would structure it. I don't know. I can't speak for them. But the point is they're there. They're willing to help. They, they and they know what they're talking about, and they don't. They're, they're not farming people off to to call centers. They're not sending them back automated emails with a script about here's what you should check. Did you try to unplug it and then plug it back in and so on? Huge, huge difference. And then another thing is that that's it's it's just been a really, really reliable uh, service. I mean, uptime is is cheap these days, but I mean just in terms of what I expect from webhosting.coop. It has been very, very – there have been no surprises, in other words. So when I'm setting up scripts to push something to webhosting.coop, it just works, and, and there are no there are no gotchas. There, there's no surprise. We 
we made you think that this thing is available to you, but when you started using it, then we had to block you because we didn't really think you were ever going to notice. And that, that literally has happened, and that was the thing that finally pushed me over the edge to to, to sit down and just and get the webhosting.coop thing set up and, and up and running and switching over my websites to webhosting.coop because the, the place that I had been with previously... I, I was doing some scripting on the server that I did not consider intrusive. I did not consider it against any kind of agreement or policy. And it wasn't. It was just some Git hooks. It wasn't a big deal. I was just, I was bouncing some some Git repos so that I could push to a Git repo and then have that repo on the server push to automatically, or actually change directory and then pull from that directory so that you know i would push content to the internet and it would get it, it would go live with a git pull in a public directory so th that there was no you know it's it's not it's nothing nothing fishy here is going on it, it's all very sort of non-threatening and 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 it's fine there's not a problem this is this should not be a problem and i got shut out and blocked and just all kinds of things were were going wrong so switched to webhosting.coop and, and and certainly that works, but that's just a single case. Again, just just one thing. The bigger picture and the bigger the bigger story here is that they're honest with what they provide. They they tell you exactly what your resources are, and then when you use those resources, they don't scold you for doing so. And and that's quite refreshing. And, and they're helpful and knowledgeable, and that's super refreshing. And I, I realize that as as I progress in knowledge about these things, I do understand that I am starting to, and this sounds really sort of really self-confident or whatever, but but I think probably you experience this as well. You know, the, the day that you understood what an IP address was and, and the day that you understood that you could go into your router and configure it or whatever, and then you call your internet company or whatever and, and you have a, a question you know, and they start talking down to you, and and now because you're you're smarter now, <laughs> and so you think this person doesn't know what they're talking about. I'm I know that because I, that's how I used to talk about these things. Yeah, I'm talking to someone who is in these issues dumber than I am. Maybe not in life or whatever, but just in these issues, this in this department, this person that I'm calling for help does not have knowledge. Uh, beyond what I have, and and sure, sometimes some people on the phone have knowledge about you know the way that the company works, and, and they might be able to explain, oh well, you're not you're not getting that service because you need to upgrade to this package or whatever. That's that's great, but for for the pure technological questions where you're getting sort of this first tier support or this however they is it first tier is the lowest I forget, but you get that sort of entry level support, and you realize oh this isn't this is no longer support for me. This is this is actually this is below the tier that I am on. So so as you go up in in support tiers, then a lot of times the companies that you're dealing with, the effect is that they're going down. You know, you're you're starting to sort of leave them behind. And webhosting.coops co not that way. They they are very much on the level of of any technologically um, sort of sound person. So if you're using Linux. You're comfortable hosting a website or or a service here and there. 
check out webhosting.coop. Highly recommended. I think if you want to use them, contact me. I think I have a coupon for you. I think that's what Josh told me. Maybe not. Anyway, contact me if you're actually going to go over to webhosting.coop. I may have a, a discount for you. That sounds exciting. That's like my first giveaway on this show. That's not true. I've given other stuff away. But that's a significant one. Now let's switch over and talk about Slackware packages. I guess this this has been a little mini-series of, of file system-related stuff in a weird way. I mean, I was talking about switching from Jetta, JFS to X4, uh, and then in this episode, uh, and then I was talking about ZFS, and then I was talking about Quota in the previous episode. Remember that? I was talking about Quota. Uh, and then this time, we're going to talk a little bit, really briefly, about a file system called RiserFS. Now, Riser, or actually, RiserFS Progs is the Slackware package that um, that we're at now. So we're Quota and now RiserFS Progs. RiserFS Progs are utilities used for RiserFS. RiserFS is a file system based on balanced tree algorithms. I don't really know what that means, but I remember, and, and people who've been using Linux longer than I have can probably correct me on this, but I remember it being, like, people would talk about it as the, the file system that had journaling. Like, that was the, as far as I remember, that was the thing that it was that was exciting about about RiserFS. Now, right, um, Wikipedia does confirm that RiserFS had metadata-only journaling, or also block journaling, since Linux 2.6.8. Which, I mean, at the time, it would have been up against EXT2, which didn't have journaling, so that would have been a, a pretty exciting development. It also could grow the file system while it was running, apparently, so online resizing, uh, growth only. You couldn't shrink, I guess, but you could grow it as it was running. And then there was uh, a scheme to indu- uh, to reduce internal fragmentation, which I don't know anything about. So that those were the, the big main features, according to Wikipedia. I don't know a whole lot of, about that historically, and I don't know a whole lot about this file system because I've never run it, and I certainly don't ever intend to run it. And, and frankly, I, I really do kind of wonder if it's even going to to stick around. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that a lot of the development has fallen off. I don't believe that it's going to be around for much longer. It is in the Slackware package set, however, because it, it was in the Slackware package set at some point, and so Slackware is quite good at backwards compatibility, and so it retains support for that file system. Next up is RPM to TGZ. Now, this one I know a lot about. I, I use this all the time. This is a fantastic little um, little little script. It is written by Patrick Volkerding. It was written, I guess, back in 1997. That's what the copyright notice says anyway. So this does pretty much what the name suggests, which is it takes an RPM and converts it to a TGZ, specifically a TGZ that is a Slackware package. And you must remember, it's difficult to remember this sometimes, but you must remember that a TGZ or a TBZ or a TXZ these are just archive formats, so you can produce a TGZ, for instance, from from files. You're just with the tar command, and that does not mean that it is a Slackware package. It just means that you've got an archive that has been tarred and then gzipped or bzipped or whatever. So the fact that Slackware uses that Slackware packages use that extension tgz tbz does not suggest that any tgz or tbz or txz is a Slackware package. It simply tells you that a Slackware package is a t question mark z. Okay, so this this will actually translate a, a a an RPM that you download from say Fedora, and it will 
unarchive the RPM, dump out all the con uh, the contents somewhere temporary, and then restructure them so that they look like a Slackware archive, and then tar them up and gzip them for you. Or x x x is a z. I don't know what the verb form of x z is. Xz zikum zipum. I don't know. So it, it will tar them up and then zip them in some form, and then and then you have suddenly a Slackware package. It seems almost too good to be true, and in a way it is sometimes. It, it can it, it does not work sometimes, but very, very frequently it does work. I use it all the time. So I'm going to go to, for instance, dl, as in download, dot fedoraproject.org slash pub slash fedora slash linux slash releases. And I have that bookmarked. I'm, I, I use this so frequently that one of the six bookmarks that I have on any of my computers, like that, all I have are six bookmarks. And they're all Slackware related, except that one, which is the Fedora release repository. So I happen to know that Fedora 25 was about two years ago, just from memory. And I know Slackware 14.2 has got to be, well, at least that long. So I'm going to go to... 25 and it looks like there's a little note here in the fedora server saying 25 doesn't even we don't even support that anymore why are you here so it sends me off to an archive so now i'm at pub archive uh, fedora and i'll go into linux and i'll go into releases if i'm recalling correctly and i'll go into 25 yep and here's everything and here are the different architectures there's x86 64 and i386 so i'm going to go into the 64 one and there's uh, OS, that's what I want, and then there are packages in there, and there's a list of all the uh, of the, the the directories, so zero through nine, and then A through Z. I'm going to go to let's say P for Pandoc because this is one of the ones. This is one of the, the I guess the the bigger ones that I use this for because Pandoc. If you've ever used Pandoc, it's a document converter. It's pretty handy, but it's written in Haskell, Haskell, and it has so many it has literally a gigabyte of dependencies in order to compile the thing it compiles down if you do it statically to an 8.3 megabyte package uh, i don't know how much the executable is off the top of my head but compiling all that just to get this one package and then never to use any haskell again ever uh, is a lot to ask so i go to fedora i grab the pen pandoc-static package, and I download that. And so here it is. It's a pandoc-static RPM. So I'll go over. I'll, I've just downloaded it. Now I'll go over to my downloads folder, and then I will issue the command rpm2tgz, and that is the number 2, rpm2tgz. Actually, I'm going to go ahead and I'll be fancy and use the newer txz, and then just give it the path to pandoc-static RPM, and it converts it. This can take a long time. It can take a short time. It kind of depends. I've seen icon sets take forever because there are so many icons in an icon set. So that, that takes a long time. But a lot of times the, the ones that are... This is actually fairly quick, you know, rela relatively. And so now once you've got... So if you do an ls in the directory, then you'll see that you indeed have a pandoc blah rpm and a pandoc blah txz. So then if I do an install should probably make sure that I don't actually have that installed yet. Yes, I do not have that installed yet. So now I can do an install pkg pandoc. I'm just going to do an asterisk txz return. And it installs it just like any other Slackware package. And now I can issue the command because it's in my path. Uh, no, it's not. Yes, it is. It's pandoc.static, which is weird. Um, I usually alias that later after the fact, but yeah, that's that's all you do. That's that's how you can get a 
a package installed on your Slackware box without really having to work at it. Now, I remember, I mean, this is this has the same kind of issue that that, that any kind of, you know, just going out to the internet finding packages generally does have, which is if if there's some portion of this package that you didn't know to get, then then you know, you've just installed essentially part of a package rather than the full thing. And in this case, that's exactly what's going on. So I, I'm getting this this issue here where I don't have all of the parts of Pandoc that I actually want. And that would be, I need to also get Pandoc-common and Pandoc-pdf, and I may as well grab Pandoc-siteproc as well. And that way, that way I'll just have the, the full stack. And, and that's that's even though it is a a static package it's just you know you, you need you need the support libraries that that didn't get installed and that si- seems a little bit strange because it it's a static package right i mean that's exactly why i'm that's why i'm doing this but um the the reason for that is because the the package would still work but for half of my uses it's not going to be very useful because i i, I want to do other uh, i want to do things that that aren't installed by default into the static um package and that's fine. It's just something that you you have to be kind of aware of. And and unlike slackbuilds.org, where it tells you, hey, these are your de- this is your dependency trail, and you can resolve that. There's no such real there's no such service d- directly here for Fedora. So you ha- you might have to do a little investigation if you decide, oh, I'm gonna install I don't know KDE using only RPM to TGZ. Probably not advisable, uh, I'll admit, but I mean you. C- could go for it. Uh, in that case, you would have to do all that homework and figure out which different RPMs are involved in this concept of install the whole thing, and, and then you'd have to convert them all. So it can be a little bit of a of a chore. And and even after I've downloaded all of these other packages, I'm still getting an error when I try to execute pandoc.static because I don't have a shared library, liblua5.1.so, can't be found. Now, I happen to know that I certainly do have Lua installed, but it, but it looks like just looking in in my USR lib64 liblua and a couple tab a couple times then liblua.so.5.1 and pandoc apparently is looking specifically for what did it say 5. Dot, or rather liblua-5.1.so so if i go as root if i switch over to usr lib64 and then oops not less cd uh, in there and then i say ln uh, dash dash symbolic and so then i'm going to link that to liblua5.1.so i think is what i'm saying yeah and that did it so that 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 frees up that error now i happen to know that that there's actually another thing that i would that technically i need but it's already installed called called libcmark and depending once again because these aren't synchronized if you get libcmark uh you know 0.28.3 which is as of this recording, that's the current one, and this was compiled against libcmark 0.25.2, which in fact it is. Then there would be a there would be a conflict there, and you'd have to you'd have to decide how you wanted to resolve that. And you could you could resolve it either by installing cmark 0.2252 and and not linking it to to what the more up to date ones usually do, which is just link themselves to libcmark.so, uh, or you could just do a symlink again from libcmark so 0252 uh, to so.o.28.3, which is considered bad practice, but I mean, it works for me. 
and 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 finally you'd get a working pandoc and we could test that out by saying echo hello into um let's just do a hello.txt and then I'll do pandoc.static and I'll just give it an input of uh, just hello.txt and then I'll put output hello-o hello.html and there now I've got a hello txt and a hello html so in other words it works and it looks like yeah put paragraph tags around the word hello so there you go that's that's how I get pandoc on my slackware system which was not the point the point was rpm 2 tgz or txz is an amazing little uh, little handy little package because I mean that that seems like a lot of work what I just did there but believe me compared to compiling the full Haskell um, tool chain this is this is priceless this is huge for me for, for for pandoc alone now that said it's a lot easier if, if I'm just going out to uh, to Fedora for instance to pilfer uh, something simple like an icon set. There's a, a, a Breeze, the KDE 5 icon set is called Breeze, I think, and it's the dark theme versus uh, Oxygen that comes with KDE 4 on Slackware. So I, I grab that from Fedora because it's easy to do that. You just go to wherever they keep their their you know this icon set, which is probably in the B section, I don't know, and then you, you grab that RPM, run rpm to txz on it it converts it sometimes it takes a long time because there's a lot of icons and then you install it and you're done that, that's it no no you don't have to worry about in, about dependencies you don't have to go grab another you know you don't have to execute anything to see what fails and then go fix it like i was doing for pandoc it's just done same thing for fonts a lot of times fonts will come really they're super easy to find on fedora uh i say that because i know where to look i'm just saying like sometimes instead of going and grabbing a font from one place, I just grab it from Fedora and install it because I can super easily just with RPM to TGZ. And there are lots of little examples here and there that I've I've stolen from Fedora. I just can't, I'm not thinking of them all necessarily. And, and some of them are complex like Pandoc. Some of them are, some of them are complex and still easy, um, unlike Pandoc. I mean, Pandoc used to be easy when there was a more a greater alignment between where Fedora happened to be and where Slackware was, but it gets a little bit more complex the farther you 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 stray. And that's not just the OS, because you saw in this example I went back to 25, but see Slackware or the the, the packages in Slackbuild specifically didn't stand still. So you've got this um, you you've you've got this old target. Of 25, your base OS is old, so you've got a good a good amount of overlap there. But then the add-on packages that you're adding keep progressing, so it, it does get complex. But depending on you know if 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 it's something that you want that is just too complex to to install otherwise, RPM2 TGZ is a fantastic option. Very very useful. It lets someone else worry about the the packaging of the thing, and all you have to do is translate it. And that's the that's the ideal. Like this is much closer to the ideal. Don't get me wrong; it's not the ideal. But th this this idea of open source and there being this thing that someone else has already spent effort on, and so you go grab that, and you maybe run it through a converter, and now it's ready for your use. I mean, that's wonderful. If all Linux packages had easy conversion, easier than this, easier than RPM to TGZ, where you have to go find out the dependencies, and then adjust your library name, symlinks, and, inst you know, all that other stuff. If, if it was 
if it was like like this but streamlined, I don't think it would be a big deal that we all had different package managers and so on. It would just be, who cares? Here's here's an RPM. Use it on this system. And there used to be a package about for, for, to do that. It was called Alien, I think. I, I, I don't really hear about that anymore. And that was specifically, I think, between RPM and uh, Deb packages. I don't really know why that has sort of faded. Um, I, I never used it, so I can't even say if it approximated, you know, if it, if it got close to that ideal. But th that would be really, really nice if we could all make that happen. And if not, let's just all switch to flat pack and image app, uh, uh, app image, and then we'll, we'll be good to go. But that's beside the point. Point is, we're through the R's now. We, we, know, we have no more R packages in the A set. So the next thing that we'll, we'll start in some other episode is the S section within the A set. Eventually we'll get to the end of the A set. It'll be very exciting. Okay, I think that's the end of the show. So I hope you had a, a good time. I hope you have learned something. And thank you very much for listening. I will talk to you next time. for listening to the GNU World Order Og Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Ogcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.